know nobody else has been doing it, but I like to just pay homage to the Buddha before I begin. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa So that was um, quite a transmission that the Venerable uh, Analio did earlier today with the bell. I don't know how it was for you because I, I realize you're all further away and I'm sitting very close. <coughs> but for me that was, that was quite a powerful transmission that happened there. And uh, I was sitting here and suddenly this, the sound of the bell and the invitation to hear it at the ear and then the invitation to hear it inside and uh, when that invitation, because it's like a, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of strong resonance, you know, it's a big, big strong bell. When there's that invitation to hear it inside, I had this experience of like the, the facade of the body, there's this, the facade of the body here, and then the sound being heard in the mind. And the mind wasn't this little thing in my body somewhere, but it was this space behind the facade of the body. And it's just it's like, ooh. That's nice. A sense of uh, opening up and expansiveness. And then again, boom. And again, this sense of like, oh, that's lovely. Of course, how can I forget? You know, how do we forget that there is that expansiveness and we get into this little small experience of me? And so maybe three strikes of the gong and just really enjoying that, uh, that experience. And then unexpectedly, Bang, bang. <laughs> so boom, that was also felt in the same place. It's like, oh, that, that's kind of, don't like that. You know, that's kind of painful. Because it did feel kind of inside. And, and then just seeing, like, oh, look at that. So, the, you know, the very easily somehow in that moment, not that it's like that all the time, but very easily in that moment, the body was just kind of a facade. It was kind of obvious. And, and yet, the, and it seemed like the mind was like this just open, expensive space, but then when this unpleasant sound and feeling came in, suddenly there's aversion. So then I just saw that, oh, look at that. So there's like, I, I didn't, I missed the fact that that was a pleasant experience. The, you know, I missed that I was like, it, just really enjoying and delighting in that pleasant experience of the, of the gong, of the bell, until there was the unpleasant experience of the harsh sound against wood. And so just sort of seeing these layers of, 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 of identification, really, you know, and like that the body one wasn't too strong in that moment and the mind one was, was kind of sort of tricking me into thinking it wasn't strong, but it was. And then, uh, and then that, that, layer, that layer of want, liking and not liking, wanting and not wanting attraction and aversion that was, that was there hidden kind of underneath those sounds for me. And so it's just, for me it's just interesting, like look at that, you know. There's kind of layers of, of um, places or, or that, that, the, that the self holds on to, the way we, way we identify and, and say, I like this, I don't like that. 
I want this, I don't want that. I am this, I am not that, you know. And and how we do that. So uh, it kind of led me into reflecting on the five aggregates, which Bhante was also speaking about earlier today, and which the Buddha speaks about frequently, frequently, frequently in the suttas. Uh, the five aggregates, or the five components, are rather like that translation, components that make up what we call me and mine. Um, body, feeling, um, perception, volitional formation, sankharas, and consciousness. So it got me into kind of reflecting on those those five aggregates and looking at them directly, like how they, you know, like the the body that feels so so me, you know, it feels so personal, it feels so so definitely here and me, and and the history of this body, and uh, you know. I can't. I don't know what it feels like to be any of you out there, but I know what it feels like to be here. And uh, Shyla and I both had. Um, we were talking early on. We both had car accidents in the past, and now in our fifties, that's starting to kind of have an effect. You know, the old injuries are like, mm, you know, the body doesn't want to sit so long. It doesn't feel good in the way that it used to. And, and um, so, just like okay, so this body's got it's got this history. It's got these painful places left over from old things and and uh, there's a sense of it being me who and what I am most much of the time and then uh, just just finding these ways of, of turning towards that with with a sense of inquiry with a sense of um, presence and and inquiry of like so so what is you know what is me what is mine about this process and uh, you know each each meal each walk up the hill each breath it's changing all the time it's changing and yet uh, <coughs> you know if I'm not really if there's not real presence and inquiry that that's forgotten and it's just me and my body and uh, <coughs> you know body a body the bodies are vulnerable things so we're all aging, and um, you know we're all liable to get sick, and also get well again often, which is great. But you know the body gets sick, and then it has to go through its process, and then gets well again. And sometimes we have things happen that we don't get well from, you know, parts that no longer work the way they used to work or chronic illnesses that we have to live with and that's just like part of the deal of having a body that's that's just it's it's part of when we're born that's part of the package and and yet we do everything we can to try and get away from that and to uh, and try and put off the inevitable end of this body you know it's kind of scary then what who am i if i'm not this body What's going to happen next? So I really appreciate the Buddha's um, strong invitation to, you know, to look at what is the nature of this body. How does it come into being? What sustains it? And to really take in the the reality of, you know, at some point we have to let it go. 
at the end of our life we have to let it go. So we kind of, in a way, may as well start now. Because it's kind of heading in that direction. <laughs> you know, the Buddha says, um, he's, I think he's speaking to a king, and he's saying, imagine if, if uh, there was a great mountain that was rolling in from the north, and another great mountain rolling in from the from the west and another from the south and another from the east and they're all rolling in to the to the town where you are would you and then those mountains are like the mountains of death would you be able to escape those mountains and he's like you know well if they're all just coming in from all sides no you, you're going to be you can't get away you can't escape and so uh, you know this this is like the reality of our situation where we can't we 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 try to imagine that we're not going to die or that we, we kind of put it off for later. <laughs> Let's just think about that another time. And yet there's this inevitability of, of our of the end of this life. And we have no idea when it's gonna happen. And we do that too. We think, okay, well when I'm, you know, eighty six maybe, then I'll die. But who knows? Who knows? You know, may, there may be many people in the room who've had a brush with death. I don't know. The, the car accident people certainly have. And uh, for me, that that experience was was very. Um, I, I feel very grateful, even though it was not a nice experience. But to have had at quite a young age this this real clear recognition that this body could die at any time. You can be crossing the street and next minute gone. You know. And that's how it goes. And uh, so I'm saying this not to make you nervous or make you depressed or anything like that. But uh, and and it can be that we you know we don't want to think about we don't want to think about our own death because it feels it's, it's there's so much uncertainty and unknowing, and then we're afraid of the pain that might come before it, and so we don't we just don't want to think about it. But if we really bring that reflection on on the impermanent nature of this body into the forefront, if we, if we really contemplate that, it kind of brings it brings a brightness, it brings a, a presence and an aliveness to this. And when we're putting it off for something in the future, there's this kind of you know, it's, it's got some aversion in it. It's got a bit of fear. It's it's, it's like got a certain denying a, a, a very clear reality. So then we're putting energy into trying to keep away something that is just truth. It's just real. It's just natural. So the Buddha is encouraging us to, to turn towards this reality and to look at it and to contemplate it frequently. Frequently, frequently. He says, you know, not, not, not just like thinking, I may die tomorrow, but this might be, you know, um, this may be my last in-breath. This may be my last out-breath. And not just uh, maybe we're having our, our lunch and then thinking, well, may this meal sustain me for the day, you know, may, may I at least live to eat the rest of this meal. Just think like this one spoon may be my last. It's, it's, it's a quite a powerful contemplation. You can pick it up and play with it a little bit during this retreat. And it, and it opens up a, a kind of a, it's almost like standing at the edge of an abyss. And you're like, <gasps> rather than, oh yeah, okay. Then this, then that, then this, then that. And then when I get home, and then that's going to be that next. And that, that kind of creates this 
somewhat humdrum illusion of, uh, of continuity, whereas that contemplation of death, it, it brings us into the present in a really sharp and bright way. And it can also bring up that, you know, we can start to look at what's, you know, what work do we need to do? Where's the fear? Where's the attachment? Where's the, where's the uh, unfinished business that we need to, or what is the unfinished business that we need to attend to? So it's a it's very valuable reflection. And I um, also like to just contemplate how this body is constantly in a state of flux, constantly, constantly changing. So we're practicing anapanasati and every in-breath is giving us new life. And every out-breath is, is letting go of what we don't need anymore. And, that, and there's that little point which you may have touched into at the end of the out-breath before the in-breath, which is like, it's a little bit like that abyss where you don't quite know what's going to happen next. Is there going to be another in-breath? And then, so far, another in-breath, you know. But one day, it will just be that drop-off point. So uh, getting to know, getting to know the breath and, and um, learning from the breath, taking the breath as a teacher. Not, uh, it's true that, it, that it's a neutral sensation and it's not very interesting and, and it's, uh, you know, the mind can get bored being just with the breath, it's very true. But it's also, I find, the most amazing teacher. It's like everything you need to know is here in the breath. It, it has this, this movement of you know, beginning, coming into a sense of fullness, coming to its, its kind of... Comp- yeah, it's fullness and then, and then diminishing until it stops, just like our lives. And then another one, it starts again, it comes into this fullness, until it's completely, you know, the whole, the whole of the in-breath, and then it diminishes again, and then it stops, just like our lives. And in some ways it could even be, whether you believe in rebirth or not, I don't know, but it could even be like a, like a, a kind of um, you know, similar to rebirth. We take birth, we go through our life, we, we grow, we, we um, develop things, we do good or not good or mediocre things in our life and then, and then at some point it, there's a decline and then, and then there's an ending of that life. And then there's, as long as we haven't um, let go of, of, of wanting and not wanting, then there's the next life. And on we go, back into the diapers, you know, learning how to walk again and grow and, and speak and relate and developing skills and, you know, being somebody. And then that comes to its fullness and it starts to decline again. And, that, and that's like the the process of things. And it's not just our lives, but everything, everything in the, in the universe. I, not, I don't actually know about the universe itself. They say it's expanding, 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 so I have no idea. But uh, pretty much everything, you know, every planet, every, every uh, creature, every rock, every bell has that same nature that it, that it comes into being. It's there for a while. 
and then it falls apart. And that's, that's, that's nature, that's how it's meant to be. And there's, there's a peacefulness in that. When we're really aligned with that truth, there's a peacefulness in that. And uh, you know, as long as we're at odds with that reality, things get really stressful. We're always looking for certainty in what is uncertain, or looking for, for um, permanence in what is impermanent. So aligning ourselves with that, that kind of beautiful, in a way, that, that, that truth of nature, that everything is operating on, in that same way, under those same laws. <coughs> and uh, you know, much, of our, much of the stress that we create in our lives is, is, is trying to run away from that reality. <coughs> So, um, so the body, <clears throat> and then feelings, feeling tone, pleasant, painful, and neutral. That, anyways, I was saying that that <clears throat> with the bell experience, that that um, you know the first ring of the bell was was really pleasant, it was lovely, and underlying that was this kind of like real enjoyment and and kind of in wanting more, <clears throat> and then underneath the loud, sharp sound was was aversion. I don't, I don't like that. Stop. So, that, so kind of hidden under, under feeling, under ve- and feeling tone, are these um, tendencies towards wanting and not wanting. Hidden underneath the feeling of unpleasant feeling is not wanting, wanting to get rid of. Hidden underneath the pleasant feeling is, is wanting more, greed. And hidden underneath the neutral feeling is, is ignoring or ignorance. So this is also really important to kind of get familiar with in our experience. So then we're not just looking for, for nice feelings and trying to get away from unpleasant feelings, but feeling Vedana, feeling tone becomes a, a teacher as well, becomes a, a means of, <coughs> of understanding where our craving is, you know, and how strong that is, and, and, and where we can explore letting go. So with, uh, with painful feeling, and I've been having some kind of hip problem in during this retreat with the, this old, very, very old injury. And um, I'm just exploring, you know, this sitting and then painful feeling arising. And, and then uh, quite a bit of the body, no painful feeling at all. Quite, quite neutral and then maybe a little bit of pleasant feeling here and there. And then this loud, painful feeling going on. And then just looking, okay, what else, what else? Lots of nothing special. Lots of quite peaceful and then blaringly loud, painful feeling. And, and then, you know, how long to, how long, like, not just like toughing it out, but okay, what, what's it like to be with this, you know? How is it to be with this feeling? Is it, is it constant? Is it, is it life-threatening? Is it... Uh, is it endurable or unendurable? You know, and just just exploring that. And then at some point, I get to a point where I say, no, no more, and I move. And probably I could endure a little bit longer, but you know, it's just, it just like gets to a point where I don't want to have to deal with that anymore. So then I move, and, and just just getting to know the push 
of of vedana, the push of feeling, and where it push, how it pushes us around, and not to be immediately pushed around by it, but to explore it, to get to know it, and to get to know what's what's underneath it. <coughs> and then uh, perception, which is a tricky one, because uh, we look. It's like looking through, you know. It's like the lenses that we that we look through. So it's this difficult to, to notice perception, but we all experience the world from our, our individual perceptions of the world, and which you know, are influenced by our particular way of thinking and seeing and experiencing things our own individual way, and then influenced by family conditioning and cultural conditioning and you know, many, many layers of, of uh, conditioning influence how we perceive things. And, uh, you know, coming back to the, the sense of self, you know, our perception of self can get, it can get quite complicated. We maybe have a, maybe we've had very uh, difficult childhood conditioning and in our perception of self there's this sense of unworthiness or inherent badness or inherent flawedness. And then we're kind of living from that and then we know it's not really true but it feels so true. So um, really investigating that and, and teasing it apart and seeing where it comes from. And uh, I, what I like to do is, is to remember the, the little baby that hadn't, didn't have that conditioning yet, that was just like going, oh, taking it all in. And uh, you know, there was a time before that conditioning was there so to just to touch into that that reality, and, then, and that can help to just maybe peel off the layers of the conditioning, and to find a little bit more freedom, more space from that, because it can be oppressive. And then, then you maybe have the conditioning of thinking that you're very special and very unique and and rather wonderful, and a bit better than everybody else, you know. And uh, that can be kind of fun for a while, and then it starts to get a problem at some point, because you know we're all we're all a mixed bag, aren't we? Really. So getting to know the 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 conditioning through as best we can, the conditioning through which we are looking and the perceptions that arise from that, and then every now and again there can be like a sudden, very strong, overwhelming perception. Um, I call them demons. Sometimes a demon arises and, and there's this very strong sense of like, uh, might, be, um, might be something like, oh, they'll all be better off without you there. You know, and then you can make a case for it. Oh, if, actually, if I, wasn't, if I wasn't there, then this would be better and that would be better. Or it might be, you know, I really am, you know, I really am not, you know, I don't, I'm really not, I am flawed or I, I don't function the way that I should. What's, you know, there's some story or other that we have about ourselves that keeps us, it oppresses us and keeps us stuck. So to, to recognize when that, that arises and to get to know the feeling of it and to, and to check it out you know, and, to, and, to, and to, to, to kind of point your finger at it and say, I know you, I know you, you're, you're not the voice of truth. So perception is very tricky. 
And there's also just the perception of you know color, form, shape, which uh, you know help us to navigate through the world. But it is just perception. And then uh, uh, volitional formations are like this this sense of willfulness, will, you know, energy. Uh, just just recognizing that as a is is one of the khandas, you know, and it's it can be useful, but it's not who and what I am. And when that when that forcefulness comes through and determination comes through, f- uh, first of all, it needs to be guided in the right way, and uh, and just knowing it as a as a as an impermanent arising of something. It's, it's just uh, causes and conditions for this to arise are happening. It's not who and what I am. And then uh, our sense experience is so, so interesting to explore the sense experience. It's a long time before I could kind of get a handle on that because it all seems so real and, and, and you know, all, all encompassing the sense experience through our six senses. But um, just getting to see the how it's so transient. You know, if you just blink now, everything, like the room disappears for a moment and then you open your eyes and it reappears again and all its multi, you know, all its, all its, all its diversity, all its colors, all its shapes. But it, just, to, just to, the eyes closed for a moment and it's gone. So this, our sense experience is like that all the time but we don't notice because we keep, we keep feeding on it. We keep... Uh, feasting on the senses. So just to explore sense experience and recognize, you know, every sound, the sound of those frogs, you know, you kind of feel like, oh yeah, I'm listening to the sound of a frog chorus, which is true on one level, but if you really stay really present, it's never the same for, for a split second. It's constantly, constantly changing. So just to explore the, uh, the experience of our senses at, at the sense doors, and the, and if we can really get present with that, there's nobody there. There's nobody seeing. There's nobody hearing. There's nobody tasting. There's just a, a very very momentary experience. So um, you know, the, for the for the awakened ones, they say uh, when someone who has realised full awakening dies. It's, uh, in, the, in the canon it's referred to as laying down the khandas, laying down those five aggregates, those five components. That you, don't, you don't pick them up again. You know, until we've really understood them, we keep picking them up, you know, keep picking them up again. So we do that through our life and then also next life and then next life and then next life. On we go, round and around, running after pleasant feeling, running away from painful feeling, trying to become somebody, trying to make our life what we think it should be, trying to run away from the inevitability of aging and death. So on it goes, on it goes, you know. So there's, um, if, one th- if one reflects in that way, there's a, there's a real incentive to to come fully into the present and to and to really learn from what is happening here what is this is it is it substantial can i hold on to it is it uh, satisfying 
for more than a moment. So, um, you know, and how we live our life is, is also so important. So I was just, just thinking about, I was remembering today a, a man who, um, when uh, I said the tutor and I live, used to live in San Francisco with Ajayati, we'd go on arms round once a week um, into the city and we'd, we'd walk along the street and then go up through Golden Gate Park and then come out near the, a market area and stand on arms. And, and for probably a little over four years, this, this man this, who was about my age would, would come, Thai man, he would come and he'd bring us like a large amount of really delicious Thai food every week in, in big pots, you know. And that would feed us for two days. So two days a week for all those years, he and his family fed us. And then you know, we'd carry it back. Sometimes it'd be like, oh, it's so heavy, carry it back through Gongate Park. You know, so they were so generous. And, and, um, and his son, and mostly he would come, and sometimes his wife would also come. And then they had two daughters in, who were, um, one was in high school, I think, and one was maybe just beginning high school or in elementary. And, um, and they would come and, and offer us every week this wonderful food. And we'd chant a blessing on the street, and then we'd carry it home and, and just really with a lot of gratitude. And then at some point, he told us that he had cancer. He said he, he discovered that he had cancer and that he wouldn't be coming for a few weeks, but his wife would come and, and offer us this food instead. And, uh, and so he disappeared for a little while, and then he came back, and then he, he just kept showing up. And he always had this manner about him that was just, he had great faith. He was a very, kind of quite a simple soul, and he was, you know, he loved being in nature, he did his work, he loved his family, and he would go to the local temple, and uh, I don't think he was a meditator, he maybe meditated a little bit, but he loved the Dharma, contemplated the Dharma. And, uh, and so for a while he started coming back again, and things seemed to be okay, and then one time I asked him, how are you? And he, and he said, uh, oh, I've just come. I've just uh, come back from having my test, and and you know, the cancer is is everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. It's all through me. And I felt like, wow. You know, he was my age. He's got children, and you know, and he's such a good man. And, and it's like, wow. I felt really sad, you know. And, and he was kind of okay about it. Strangely, he was kind of centered. And. Um, and then speaking to his wife, you know, and she was also, you know, it's obviously it was it was like heartbreaking on one level, but they were like, they were very clear about the Dharma, they understood the Dharma very well, and there was just this sense of like, you know, this body has had its time, and it's and it's sick, you know, and it, it's not going to help you to it's not, not going to help him to keep it. Even his wife, she was just really clear, who loved him very much, she was really clear, you know, this this body's done its work and now it's time to let it go. He was maybe 46 or something like that, 47. And, um, and he was also somehow just very, very clear about that and very peaceful about that. And he did what, you know, they did what they needed to do as a family to prepare for his leaving. And uh, I'm sure for the daughters it was really very hard. And yet there was this, you know, his wife was a very strong woman and it was like, okay, we, we need, you know, life goes on, we need to keep going, we need to keep working, we need to keep bringing up the kids. And, and, um, and there was love there 
and care, but there wasn't like a sentimentality around this. And uh, we, uh, at some point he was no longer able to come out on the street to, you know, he would still be bringing out food for us. And so then we would go into, into the house where he was and he would be in bed and his wife would take us in. And, and then as soon as he saw us, he'd, he'd get up out of bed and we'd be like, no, 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 don't, don't get up, you know, you're not well. And he'd, be like, he'd get up and he'd make himself tidy and then he'd speak a little bit and then, then, we'd, and then we'd give a blessing and we'd go away. And, and then eventually he went into, hos- into a hospice in San Francisco and, and uh, Ayajayati and I went to see him and again he, when we arrived he got up and he sat up and he ha- we had this conversation you know, about the Dharma and, uh, and he was very okay you know, in himself and uh, as we were leaving we talked to the staff and they were like well you know, what's the situation does he have like weeks or months or? and the staff were not really sure and then the next day we heard that he died. So he was like so close to death, but he still, I don't know, he, he had this way of just like meeting life in the moment, meeting what needed to be met in the moment and letting go when it was time to let go. So it was a very, very beautiful teaching that he gave us. And, and he died just a, maybe a, just a matter of days before we, we left San Francisco and moved up to the foothills. So I often think of him and, and share merit with him wherever he may be. You know, not a great meditator or anything, but a, a, a man who had the Dharma deep in his heart, who knew the Dharma deeply and wasn't afraid of the truth of nature. So uh, I just kind of wanted to bring him in tonight. And, um, and also there's one man who was actually going to be on the retreat and had to cancel at the last minute. And um, he wrote saying, I'm, I'm sorry that I can't be there. I'm with my dad, with my father. He's, he's dying. And uh, I feel really, really sad that I can't be. I feel really upset that I can't be on the Mindfulness of Breathing retreat. But my dad is right at the end of his life and, and I need to be with him. And, and I wrote back and I said, you know, I think you're going to have some really profound teachings on Mindfulness of Breathing over these days. And uh, the next time he wrote, he said, my father's passed, I'm holding his hand right now. And uh, this is just yesterday, actually. I'm holding his hand right now. And he looks like me. People often mistook us and thought we were brothers. So he's, he's like holding the hand of his father, looking at what could be him, what will be him one day taking in that reality as best we can. It's hard to take it in, but taking in that reality as best we can. And then his next message was, this could be my last breath. So it's not a, it's not a morbid reflection. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a sorry reflection, but it's a, a liberating reflection. And there's a, there's a, a, a little quote of Ajahn Chah that I, I love very much, where he says, Our lives are like the breath, like the growing and falling leaves. When we really understand that, we can sweep the leaves every day and have great happiness in our lives in this ever-changing world. Our lives are like the breath, like the growing and falling leaves. 
So every breath is teaching us this truth of impermanence, of not-self, of ungraspability. So uh, this this afternoon, I think it was Venerable Anali was speaking about the this rhythm of the of the sixteen steps of Anapanasati. So for, I just have to kind of fess up that for for many years I could not practice those sixteen steps. I found it really difficult. I thought it would be what would happen for me. I don't know if it's this true for any of you, but what would happen for me would be like I'm here with the breath. There's the breath, and then, okay, there's step one, step two, step three, so I've got to remember the steps, and then what would happen would be this, this sense of um, me suddenly would arise, me, <laughs> me breathing, um, rather than just the breath happening without me noticing, you know, it just naturally, and then having to get to a step and then get to another step. So it was kind of just like a, a hurdle, a course, you know, and... Um, so there are 16 hurdles to Anapanasati, you know. And um, so uh, I've so, so appreciated Venerable Analio's approach and guidance, which is, this isn't about getting anything or getting anywhere, but it's about coming into direct presence with what is happening now, being interested in that, knowing what is present and what is not present. It's so, so different. And, and that way, you know, instead of, instead of all that becoming energy that happens, there's just a, a dropping back into alignment with what is. And then guiding it gently in the right direction. And, uh, and knowing what is present and what is not present. And he, he didn't say it, to, he hasn't said it on this retreat, but on, when I sat with him before, he used this phrase, which I, I really love. As, we, as we're getting through the, you know, to the second tetrad and, and the joy arises, he would say, just a little bit of joy is good enough for us. I found that so sweet. Just a little bit of joy is good enough for us. And, the, and then he'd look and he'd like, is there a little bit? And oh, there's a little bit there. Okay. And then, and then staying with the joy, that little bit would make it a little bit more. So there's this, just this kind of turning towards. And then today he even kind of was a little bit more generous in saying, even if there isn't any joy, you can still go to the happiness, the, the contentment. I mean, it's so sweet, so generous. Not, um, you know, not you've got to get this really high level of joy, otherwise it doesn't, it doesn't really count, you know. But just like, what's present? Is there a little bit of joy? Maybe, maybe not. And then what about some contentment with things as they are? And so just this, this really beautiful invitation. It's all about coming back to what is. And we so easily get into this idea of, of, of trying to get something, trying to reach somewhere, trying to get rid of something. And, that, and that's that same old movement that keeps us going through birth after birth after birth, whether it's in this life or in future lives. So moving out of that, of that compulsion to be somebody going somewhere and, and resting back into this interest, presence, curiosity of... So what is going on now? And when we rest back in that way, we, we are using, um, I've said to quite a few people in the, in the 
practice discussions how we often don't even know we're doing it, but that then we're using the, awa- the awakening factors. So sati, presence, awareness, mindfulness, is the first of the awakening factors. Investigation of dhammas, dhamma vichaya, is the second. So that means like, mm, what is going on? It's, like, it's that sense of curiosity. It's just that. And then energy, and not forceful energy, but just enough energy, just like a sustained attention that will stay with it enough to learn something, to see something. So if we're doing that, which I think people are doing all the time, actually, and not noticing, then we're already using those first three factors of awakening. We're already on the path to awakening in in that movement out of the going forward to some attractive goal in the future and getting rid of some unpleasant thing in the past to presence, inquiry, energy with what is, what is here and now. And just that very quality brings up a sense of, even if it's very subtle, a sense of joy because it's, because it's bringing us into presence. So I'm not going to go further into the awakening factors. But just wanted to just wanted to uh, point to that because it's so easy to pick up a practice with with a goal and then we become somebody with a goal who's trying to get somewhere and get away from somewhere and disaster. <laughs> so it's just leaning back a little, taking an interest, like almost listening. It's almost like a listening quality. Hmm, what's going on? like that. So I'd like to end with a poem that is um, it's by uh, Maddie Weingast and uh, it's, uh, it's a part of a, a sort of a heart's translation of the Terigata and the Terigata is the, is the oldest collection of women's literature in the world and it's part of the Pali Canon. So it's the um, verses of the early Buddhist nuns or the first Buddhist nuns in the Buddha's time. And this is not a literal translation but it's kind of a heart's translation of uh, the, the, the verse of Sangha, Bhikkhuni Sangha community. When I left the only home I'd ever known, I thought I'd left everything behind but I was still carrying all the years of running back and forth and around in circles after this or that. Just sitting still, those circles have broken apart and been carried away by this simple wind blowing in and out. All your old thoughts like snow falling on warm ground. Just sit back and watch. So may we find that that place of ease, that place of balance, where we can see the Dharma right here, where our own breath is our most vital teacher, most profound teacher. It's, It's right here every moment of every day. Yeah. 
So you're welcome to carry on sitting. Let's just sit for a few minutes, and then if you want to, then it's uh, up to you to do what you like. There won't be a nine o'clock bell. You can just sit or walk or retire, whatever you'd like to do. We'll just sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.